Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Gender, a channel on New Books Network. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler, your host today. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Allison McGregor about her new book, Sex Matters, How Male-Centric Medicine Endangers Women's Health and What We Can Do About It. Welcome, Allison. Thank you for having me. I am thrilled to share my uh, research and advocacy with you and your audience. Wonderful. I wonder if you could begin by telling us about yourself. Sure. I am an emergency physician um, at Brown University in Providence, Rhode Island. I work at Rhode Island Hospital. It's a level one trauma center. And I was born and raised in Rhode Island as well. So from a very loving family where the mantra was, you can do whatever you want with your life, that you have the power to um, create your own world. And so I thought I liked medicine and science. And so I decided I was going to become a physician. Um, and I said that, you know, in, you know, uh, grammar school, I remember saying that, declaring that. And then I realized, well, that's really hard to do. <laughs> and I realized how challenging that um, it was because I don't have any other physicians in my family. And I had to figure out that pathway on my own through gaining mentors and advisors. And and I made it through and I uh, worked very hard um, to get into medical school, worked hard through medical school, and then finally was able to have my emergency medicine residency back in my own home state uh, at Brown University. And I've stayed there ever since. And that leads to my next question, which is what inspired you as a busy doctor uh, to write this book? Well, I was always interested in women's issues, uh, women's rights and the reproductive rights uh, of the 60s and 70s. And I always kept my eye on that. And I felt so grateful to the women who really uh, worked hard to try to get societal equality. And so while that was always there for me, um, at the end of my residency, and I was joining the faculty, because it's an academic institution, you are expected to do research and do some education. And so I was trying to decide what my focus area would be. And I thought, well, since I've been so interested in helping women have a better life and better health, I thought I would like to do a focus on women's health. But what I found when I was looking for projects and uh, finding uh, some advisors, there was this realization that people expected that I was saying I wanted to focus in obstetrics and gynecology. Um, And that really struck a chord with me because I thought, well, I see women every day in the emergency department, and they're not always there with some gynecologic issue. They're there with heart attacks and strokes and trauma and infections. And so then I started to look into the literature. And this was over a decade or so ago. And the cardiovascular literature started to publish some information that women might present with a heart attack differently than men. And that really struck a chord with me as well, because I thought, well, if they present differently with a heart attack than men, then How different are they in all of these other areas that I encounter? Um, And so I started to focus on 
conducting research to look at differences across the whole spectrum between men and women. And, um, and so how does that translate to this book? You know, after publishing in scientific literature and developing and sharing more evidence and um, creating educational um, programs and initiatives, I would still show up at the emergency department and see that these healthcare disparities that women are receiving are not getting any better. And we just don't have time to wait. So I wanted to write something that would resonate with women, uh, men and women, really, but um, to empower women to advocate for themselves in the current health care system while trying to um, uh, further this cause uh, while working within it. And you really get right to that in the opening of the book. Chapter one is entitled Modern Medicine is Male-Centric Medicine. And I have to say, as a, as a woman, that was surprising and yet relieving to see that. Because when you go to a medical clinic, the phlebotomist is female, the x-ray tech is female, the nurses are female, maybe even your physician is female. And yet what you're saying again and again in the book is that the model for how medicine is provided and how symptoms are determined is male. Um, you, you say even the diagrams that you have to mark things on are a, a male body. Um, and that one of the biggest and most flawed assumptions in medicine is that if it makes sense in a male body, it must make sense in a female one. And you wrote this book to say, no, that's not true. Can you go back to your opening illustration of, of heart medicine and heart health and talk about how a heart attack, which you talk about quite a bit in the book, is not presenting the same in a woman as it is in a man. Yes. Yeah, so, you know, when we began to really conduct evidence-based medicine, it was around the time that there was a concern for enrolling women into clinical trials. Um, if something happened during that trial, uh, they became pregnant. And if there was a uh, bad result, um, some sort of, um, you know, negative impact on the fetus. So there was this, you know, sort of paternalistic protection that women of childbearing age would not be included in, you know, in clinical research, in any research, even preclinical research. Um, and there was the assumption that, that that was okay because men are, um, you know, similar enough and that we could use the results to apply to both men and women. Uh, and so that's the data and the evidence that is used to educate Healthcare providers. It's used to educate future doctors and nurses and the phlebotomists. It's been used to determine how to diagnose heart attacks. It's been used to determine what diagnostic testing and treatments that we use. So when I was undergoing training, there was, um, you know, all of the anatomy books and all of the instructions were all based on male evidence. And then there would be a separate uh, photograph or a page on women's reproductive issues. So it was entirely male until you got to, um, uh, you know, gynecologic issues or breast health. And so when we're now out in practicing our medicine, we are trained to look for what a heart attack looks like. And it's based on a male pattern. So men tend to present with crushing chest pain. Um, if you Google, you know, a heart attack, you'll just see 
picture after picture of a man clutching his chest, uh, maybe some pain radiating down his left arm. But that is not how all women present. Um, women can present like that, but they're more likely than men to present differently. And it's shortness of breath, uh, nausea, maybe some chest discomfort, but it's not described as uh, an elephant. Uh, sometimes they have jaw pain. And so what happens is the message out there for women is for everyone, if you're having a heart attack and it feels like an elephant sitting on your chest, call 911. Well, women are sitting home thinking, well, it's not quite that. So they wait, they delay care, and then they finally decide, maybe I'll get checked out. And then they call 911 or they go to the emergency department. And then those people are not recognizing end time because it's not what they were taught. And on and on and on. And even the way that we treat and diagnose um, heart attacks are based on the way that men have heart attacks. So it's not just that presentation is different. It's the anatomy and the physiology of heart attacks are different between men and women at the cellular level of that heart muscle. And we just and haven't you, taken this into account. And you talk about how the diagnostic tests basically in women are looking for the wrong thing. And so, so many women are sent home holding their head being told that they're having anxiety and that anxiety is the most um, diagnosed condition in women. And yet it's often not at all what they have. It, it's not just for heart attacks. It's for strokes as well that this happens. Yes. For a lot of conditions, anxiety seems to be the, uh, the go-to diagnosis when we don't know what's going on in women. Um, and so, you know, to have a true generalized anxiety disorder is uh, a, a horrific thing. And there's criteria that you have to meet to um, be diagnosed with that. Um, what I find is that when I see these women come into the emergency department and I'm looking at their electronic medical record now, I see so, so many of them, such a huge percent of them have the diagnosis of anxiety written in their chart. And I question them about that. And they say, well, sometimes, uh, you know, I guess I had um, anxiety or they had a discussion with their doctor one time and they were emotional about a medical issue. And so um, they tacked on anxiety. And then that just gets copied and pasted throughout their person's medical history now that we have all of this electronic transfer. And so what happens is when a healthcare provider does not know what's going on with the women because they don't recognize what these symptoms should be, um, then it's easy to say, well, are you feeling anxious? Maybe this is your anxiety that's um, you know, presenting as uh, this shortness of breath and you're feeling palpitations. And um, so it becomes an easy way to uh, provide a diagnosis. And um, I, I think that it's very unfortunate because women have so many medical conditions that are not fully understood, um, like fibromyalgia, like uh, irritable bowel syndrome, like migraines, all of these things that are just constellation of symptoms that we don't really understand because we haven't studied them in women and they're not as common in men. And you say in the book that women who have migraines with aura are actually at much greater stroke risk, that you see a high correlation between that and, and strokes. And yet that when women come into the 
the emergency department and they say, I have this terrible headache, but they're not weak on one side of their body. A stroke isn't the go-to thing that's ruled out for them. Right. And so the more that we're learning, the more we're realizing that there are um, sex-specific risk factors. So in other words, um, when we think of risk factors for heart disease, we think of hypertension and diabetes and smoking. But just by being a woman, and if you had uh, complications around pregnancy, um, uh, gestational diabetes or uh, preeclampsia, these things we have found are specific risk factors for women for heart disease. And so same thing with stroke, you know, we're realizing that women present differently with stroke. And so there are certain sex-specific risk factors for stroke in women. And this relates to understanding women's bodies and how the menstrual cycle and our hormones actually affect our well-being. It's, it hasn't been studied. It's thought to be too complicated. Um, and, um, and I just think that that's not uh, morally uh, okay anymore. We have this obligation and our science is, is, has evolved. We, we, we can get complicated now. And you identify in the book sort of at least two key reasons why we don't know more about women's bodies. One is that men are overwhelmingly the editors of medical journals and they select articles that are of interest to them and they have their confirmation bias. They have their, um, what appeals to them. And because they're men, it, it seldom, or at least up till now has disproportionately been not so much about women and much more about men. And then the other factor that you bring up is the clinical trials start with testing on male cells and then move to testing on male animals and then move to testing on males. And once it reaches that point and it's considered safe, it's assumed that it will be safe on women. And where we get the data of how it's reacting on women is once the women are, are taking it and trying to tell their provider, no, this doesn't do what you said it would do or no, I don't feel right. And so it's a much longer process to collect data on how things really affect women once they are once they are taking it, can you speak to that? Sure, absolutely. Um, yes. So um, when someone uh, wants to conduct an experiment or a clinical trial, um, you have to look at the previous research, and then you do a review of that, and then you create a hypothesis about the next piece of evidence that you want to obtain. When that entire line of evidence was based on male cells, male animals, male humans, it's very difficult to just all of a sudden say, well, let's look at this, let's include women in this particular experiment. Um, the, 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 the line of evidence is not there for women. So one of the things we have to do is we have to establish baseline data in women. We need to include new models of disease uh, we need to develop them so that we have a full understanding at that cellular level. Because keep in mind, when we are talking about a cell, when we look at the DNA in the cell, the DNA holds our chromosomes, men and women have an entirely different pair of chromosomes. So if you are biologically female, it's most likely that you have two X's. You have XX, and if you're biologically male, you have an X and a Y. Now that is a whole chromosome of different genes that are turning on, turning off and interacting with medications and interacting with your environment. And so it really has to go back to some of the origins of where we created a lot of this. 
the first thing that you mentioned um, is true that there are mostly men in um, uh, leadership positions, so leadership positions in editorial boards and in review boards and in research, um, uh, you know, um, conglomerates and educational uh, deans. And so if all of these, um, you know, women think of women issues and men think of men issues, What's really interesting is there are a couple um, uh, research papers out there where it showed that um, they reviewed thousands and thousands of research papers. And when the primary researcher was a female, the analysis was more likely to include women and to include a sex-specific analysis. So here's an opportunity to get women to um, not only uh, get them to those leadership positions, um, but that will that will trickle down and help us have a greater understanding of women as patients as well. And you talk about that in the book. You say patients statistically receive better care when there is racial and or gender congruence between the patient and the doctor and at facilities with a diverse staff. Can you talk about how... Um, how that, that comes to play when patients walk in to an emergency department or a clinic looking for care? Well, it's, um, it's, that's, it's challenging because what happens is in uh, places that, so I work at a level one trauma center. And so because it's unique in the fact that it's in such a small state of Rhode Island, I see people of um, all socioeconomic uh, classes, but most places they are segregated, and you might have people of uh, white race um, uh, uh, being the physicians to people of um, you know uh, people of color, and so there's this lack of sometimes understanding uh, different levels of communication based on race and ethnicity and gender, because um, what I study are both the biological factors of sex, but then also how gender identity impacts health. And so if you have a female patient who um, the cultural behavior is that women can cry, they feel emotional and they can express it. So they do. And so when that happens, if the provider is a male, they may not know what to do with that. They may um, think that uh, this is, you know, anxiety again, or this is an emotional uh, issue when it's a physical issue. So what happens is women, when they see a man, they might increase the volume of their expression, like, oh, this really hurts. And just to try to get it through to that male physician, because what male physicians do is they may turn down the volume when it's a woman. And so there's this natural um, sort of... um, uh, negotiation when you have a health provider that is does not look like you, um, that doesn't communicate like you, and there when there's a discordance, it oftentimes it leads to um, lesser care. And you point out that because the tests often don't pick up women's conditions, or uh, the right test isn't ordered because their symptoms don't seem to warrant ordering that test, the most important tool you use and that you you urge the students that you train to use is to really listen, to take that history and to ask questions. And one of your examples was you had a younger patient come in 
She was about 30, and it said on her intake that she wasn't a smoker. But you knew that in that age group and for women that there's a difference between a woman who thinks she's a smoker and a woman who sees herself as a casual smoker. And your time with the history and knowing that gender difference allowed you to diagnose her blood clot. Can you can you talk about that more? Sure. It's um, it's really interesting because things like, uh, you know, a, a woman thinking that she's a casual smoker, so she doesn't want to say, you know, that doesn't count. Um, uh, also, women on um, some sort of birth control, whether it's oral or they have an IUD or if they have an, um, an implant, so, um, it's important to be able to uh, say that those things are there, that, you know, I'll ask women and say, so do you have any medical problems? And they'll say, no. And I'll say, what do you use for birth control? And they're like, oh, oh, yeah, well, I, I take the, the pill. And so there's, there's been this sort of um, neglect of the importance of women's uh, reproductive cycle. So if, you know, women are just supposed to suffer with uh, menstrual cramps, they're just supposed to suffer with, oh, it's just an ovarian cyst. Um, Oh, it's just endometriosis. Oh, you're just uh, PMS. And so women have had that as a cultural uh, framework. And so when they go into seek care, they just assume that that doesn't matter. And so they don't necessarily discuss those things with their provider because they've been taught that that's not something that is um, important. So I, I think that even though I, I advocate that women are more than their reproductive issues, I also think it's very important to say that um, uh, we need to also include our reproductive physiology and our discomforts around that um, as something that is valuable and um, and you know, can be pathologic to some people. And that's also part of the clear communication of the side effects of medication uh, and how medications really affect women's bodies. You gave an example in the book of a woman who needed care for her migraine and wasn't told that that medication would adversely affect her birth control. Um, and when she came into to you, she was very ill from the effects of having to deal with an, an unwanted pregnancy. Can you talk about how the this really comes back to a clear understanding of how medicine really affects not only women's bodies, but women's lives and their, the reasons they're on that medicine? Because that story about that woman really illustrated how not having that information created the opposite effect on her life of why she was taking the medication in the first place. Yeah, that, that, that story just breaks my heart. Um, it does. I think about her and I think about a lot of, a lot of my female patients because they are victims of, of not having the right information. And so what happens is what we've learned from taking medications is that most of them have been tested on white, healthy males. And so if that's the case, who takes medications in, in the United States or even across the world? Women. Women are more likely to be prescribed multiple medications. They're more likely to have multiple providers, and no one really knows what the other one is uh, prescribing because they are searching for help, searching for a diagnosis. One doctor will say, well, it's not your heart, so go see this gastroenterologist. And the gastroenterologist will say, it's not your heart, go see the psychiatrist. And so that, so they end up accumulating all these medications that were never tested in their bodies, never mind altogether. 
and never tested on what happens during their menstrual cycle. So there's one example that I teach is that um, women who have seizure disorders, there are a couple medications that they take to help prevent seizures um, that during certain phases of the menstrual cycle, that medication will not be effective. Uh, the hormones, um, you know, estrogen, it changes our uh, blood flow. It changes our body weights and water um, and, and it turns on and off genes. And so during certain phases of the medical um, menstrual cycle, that medication will not be effective. So what will happen? The woman will have a seizure and then she comes into the emergency department and uh, she's told she can't drive. Uh, she's told that uh, maybe we need to increase the dose of her medication um, every day instead of during that certain phase. If during a couple days, you know, if we knew that, we could tailor these medications to these women to help them lead um, greater lives. So uh, I find that the medication issue is is huge. Um, you know, from the moment we take a pill, our body absorbs it. You know, it has its action. We then excrete it. And there have been important differences that have been demonstrated uh, in each of those steps between men and women. And it affects, uh, you know, safety and efficacy and side effects. It, the, you know, women just have much more side effects to medications because it's, it's sort of a, um, you know, it's, it's a guessing game once it's out there. And to continue on with how medicine is different for women, you gave two examples uh, that were really powerful in the book. One is how not testing Ambien on women, and yet it being largely prescribed to women, sometimes had very devastating effects for women. And the other is the fillers that are used in generic drugs, um, which are 80% of the prescribed drugs in the United States. Uh, have a very different effect on women, which completely changes the efficacy of the medication in their bodies. Could you talk about those two examples? Sure. Ambien was a flagship in this, uh, a flagship medication in, in the need to really look at this. So Ambien, you know, was out and prescribed for over 20 years, mostly to women because women suffer from insomnia more than men. So you know, the original studies were primarily based in men. There are some um, uh, examples where some of the studies may have shown a small sex difference, but at this time, it wasn't seen as important. You know, men and women were, were, were you know, combined if, you know, some women were sprinkled into the study, but primarily based on men. So the dose was based on male metabolism. And so what happens is after 20 years of being prescribed, there is something called post-market surveillance where anyone, um, a physician, a pharmacist, a patient, anyone has the ability to go on and file a report that says you feel as though you had a bad reaction to a particular medication. And what was happening was there were these accumulating reports that women were having car accidents the morning after taking Ambien because they were still impaired. They were sleepy. And so there was a study done that looked at, uh, took men and women, and they gave them the same dose of uh, a derivative of Ambien, and they waited, you know, the amount of time that it takes to 
um, you know, that what the bottle says, make sure you get, you know, four hours of sleep. And they waited four hours of sleep. And then the men and women went into driving simulation studies. And these are the same studies that we use to determine, you know, blood alcohol levels in driving and the safety of that. And so what they found was that the women did horrible in these uh, demonstrations. And they then were able to take serum concentrations of the men and the women. And they found that women had two times the serum concentration compared to men. So they were given the same dose, yet women had two times the level in their blood. And this was the first time that the FDA recommended having sex-specific dosing, whether you are male or female. And so that demonstrates the consequence of not of not realizing that this important uh, differences are there. How many how many car accidents you know have I um, cared for victims of you know in the emergency department during during all of those t- uh, years, and how many of them were were related to this particular drug, and so it just shows you that this is not something small that we are talking about differences that can lead to life or death. And so as far as um, generic medications go, yes, they do uh, represent 80% of the prescriptions uh, filled, and they serve a great need by making medications affordable. However, uh, um, those, uh, so what happens is when a company wants to create a generic drug, they do a study that's called bioequivalent. And so what they're trying to do is just make it equivalent enough, close enough to the brand name to pass the requirements. And it does not have to be 100% equivalent. It can be, you know, um, uh, between 80 to 120%. So so there's this um, need to just choose, show that there is an equivalence. So what happens is these companies use almost exclusively men in these studies. And what they do is they give that man the generic drug, and then they uh, create some testing and they take some blood tests. And then they give that same person the brand name and do the same testing. And what's happened is, first of all, the original active greeting of whatever that drug was, maybe that was also just studied in men. So now we're having the brand name and the generic drug just go straight through and have it be based on male male physiology. But what happens is even if that active ingredient of the original brand name was tested in women, when the drug company for the generic drug, they just have to show that the active ingredient is the same. But there's lots of fillers, as you mentioned. Um, one of them is uh, polyethylene glycol that has been very, um, it's most commonly used. And there was a study that looked at the generic formulations in men and women, and the women had such different responses to the generic medications, some that were toxic levels, some that were not even, um, uh, you know, not even uh, doing their job. They were very, very low. It was totally skewed. And the menstrual cycle also affected some some responses. And so what I think is as we are trying to really change the way that medication is done and how it's approved for both women and men, we need to stop telling women that um, just because it's the generic that 
you know, the symptoms that they're feeling are all in their head. We've been taught that. We've been taught as physicians that generic is similar enough and it shouldn't be an issue. And then women are prescribed generic and they feel differently. They having, they're having side effects. And then they're told that, um, that it's not, you know, it's, that's not real. Uh, and so I really um, encourage women to, um, if they're having a negative effect to a generic uh, drug, to just discuss other alternatives with their physicians. There's lots of um, generic companies and formulations and uh, to at least uh, you know, tr try to find something that is uh, tolerable and effective. And that's a recurring theme throughout the book, which is it's really important to advocate for yourself, believe in what you're feeling, don't downplay it, and don't apologize for it. Um, but you also speak really to the point that so many women, uh, by the time they, they are going through getting a diagnosis, they've been to multiple providers who didn't believe them. And you talk about two effects that happen. One is that they basically develop a form of PTSD. And the other is something called the amplification effect. Can you talk about sort of this net damage on women of not being believed in during the process of them trying to find a diagnosis for what really is wrong? Yeah, it, it does have an effect. Um, and so what happens is the woman comes in and she is uh, looking, um, she had, she's, you know, had to stop what she's doing and go see the doctor and try to explain what's going on. And that physician is doing their best to, um, to diagnose. And um, when that, when that, that is not successful, when the doctor does not know really what's going on or suggests that she sees um, another specialist or a different doctor, and then um, those uh, um, visits aren't successful at, as well, and now she's taking different medications, and now she's um, having side effects on those medications, and then she needs medications for those side effects, and then she's depressed, and then someone wants to give her an antidepressant. These things really start to compound. And there's becomes this fatigue, this emotional fatigue that women can experience. And um, it can actually lead to lots of stress and, and um, uh, can change their, their lives and their livelihood and whether they can function uh, in their families or in their work spaces. Um, and so that is very real. And so what um, the other thing when you mentioned the amplification effect is that women, when, when they are okay, that's it. I'm going to go the, for the fourth time in two weeks. To, I, I, I can't take this anymore. And then they go there and then they're, they're, they're fed up and they, they don't want to be dismissed yet again. So they really try to you know, amplify that this hurts and they might um, cry out or uh, insist that something be done. And then that might set up um, a, uh, um, a reaction against the health care provider that the woman doesn't necessarily want to achieve. And so what I really try to tell women is to um, take ownership of the accuracy of your personal medical um, history. So take very, very good notes. Uh, so that way, when someone says, um, oh, it says here in the electronic medical record that you have anxiety or that you're taking this medication at this dose, say that's not accurate. That was changed a while ago. Um, really sort of take ownership of that and to bring an advocate with you. Um, I find that the um, women that bring an advocate with them, um, it really helps because then the advocate can say, 
you know, she doesn't really complain. This, 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 this is a lot for her. I've seen her, um, I've known her and this is something that's, that's really big and, and, um, and can really sort of, uh, um, legitimize the, the complaint and just to provide support and, you know, get a second opinion. And so I think, um, that's also very important. And for women of color and marginalized women, such as trans women, there's also what you call the stereotype threat. And you say you're not imagining things. There really is explicit and implicit bias in medicine. And you speak about the great importance for those women, particularly uh, finding a provider they can trust and finding a healthcare care facility where they will feel safe and they can speak openly. Can you talk about the important role that plays in them getting good medical care? Yes, it's, you know, the transgender community has been um, the, one of the most unfortunate communities because they have uh, tried to avoid a lot of medical care because of uh, stigma that they feel, that they receive, and the lack of understanding of um, uh, of their bodies uh, by the medical institutions. You know, we haven't, I'm saying we haven't studied women. I, we, I mean, we haven't even come close to studying trans uh, individuals. And so um, what I think is very important for, um, for trans individuals to do is to make sure that they come right out and they say, I'm taking uh, these medications or these hormones, because that is very important for us to know, to understand their health. Um, this is where also comes in the role of gender identity. So if there's a transgendered woman that is seeking care, then I need to know that her biological sex is XY. So her heart may act like a male heart. However, because she declares herself a woman in society, I need to know what role that has in her health, that she's more likely to want to um, um, have family friends and, and, you know, be part of the discussions and the dispositions and women tend to delay seeking care because they're juggling a lot of things. So it's important to realize that studying biological sex and gender identity will help us be able to individualize healthcare for the trans um, community. And, um, and, and then we can start to, to study uh, those different effects. And so I really encourage them to be open about their organ inventory, which organs that they have, um, which medications they're taking. And, uh, and um, if they don't feel comfortable doing that with that particular provider, then um, it is absolutely important that you find someone that you feel comfortable with. It's okay to doctor shop. We, we don't have to accept a physician um, just because they're in that position of power. I think that we should be looking at physicians in this day and age as very educated and experienced consultants in your health. And you talk in the book about when women are looking for their primary care physician, and you talk about that, that relationship with the primary care physician being really of utmost importance. And for there to be sort of an umbrella there where that primary care physician is getting all the information from any specialists who may be part of the team so that they know about all the medications, all of the recommendations. But the primary care physician doesn't necessarily have to be a woman, but you've identified that it's pretty crucial that there be a diverse staff, that 
whoever the primary care physician is working with on their team needs to really represent a cross-section of the kind of patients that they're going to see and how this influences the kind of medicine they provide as they go along in their career. Can you talk about the need for the diversity um, on the staff and amongst the physicians, please? There's this really terrific study that came out recently that showed that women who were admitted to the hospital with a heart attack, that when they were cared for by women physicians, they had better outcomes. But the other interesting thing that was um, showcased was that if they were cared for by a male physician in a group that had lots of women physicians, then they got good care also. And so I think what we're, what we're saying here is that um, diversity will help everybody. So if you, know, if you are just in a group of people, all of your same uh, sex or gender or color or ethnicity, then that you, be, you become very um, one-minded. You become very focused on, uh, you're, you're sharing your experiences and they would all be you know, harmonious. When you have diversity, then you are talking about with your colleagues, you discuss cases, you, you, um, you're there for each other to, to, to help this, you know, medicine, medicine is, is, is constantly evolving. And so it's difficult to keep, um, keep up with it. So it's a lot, you know, as we are doing this lifelong learning, it's very important just to, to, um, talk with colleagues, to have a diverse group. And I really feel as though that that will translate to the care that you provide. So I by no means think that everyone needs, you know, all women need a, a women uh, physician. Um, um, you need someone that you trust, that you feel as though understands your unique needs as a woman, and someone that you feel as though can be that, uh, um, you know, your the general of, of, of keeping in touch with everything. Um, I think that that is really important. You may not have your choice of a, a physician in an emergency situation, but certainly in your primary care, um, you have choices. And so I think that that's really key. And that's a big part of chapter eight, which is called A New Perception, Gender, Culture, and Identity Medicine. And it's really interesting when you get to chapter eight, because when you open, you talk about how you and a couple of colleagues put together this talk about women's medicine for the SAEM conference and no one showed up. But by 2014, when you put together a full day symposium on these matters, a hundred people came and that as you've continued to do these, these numbers are growing and, and the request for you to provide these symposiums is growing. Can you talk about what's, what's bringing about that shift and what identity medicine uh, ideally looks like in your vision of how medicine is going to move forward? I feel as though, you know, doctors generally want to do good. Um, we have to go through a lot of years of training and schooling. And uh, there, there's, there, there usually is this altruistic motive. And so the reason why people um, are realizing how important this is, is because we have exponential data. So the more data out there that shows important differences, then doctors want to listen because they want to get it right. 
Um, and so I think it's been so important to do research um, and to continue to highlight the fact that these important differences are, 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 are crucial. Um, and I think that that will um, help sort of, um, you know, rising tide lifts all boats. So um, the more that we discuss this in conferences, the more that we make this part of the way that we practice medicine. So my, you know, what I envision is that each time, um, you know, a, a physician sees a patient, that the first thing they think of is what is that patient's biological sex uh, and what is their gender identity? Um, and how do each of those affect the way that they are presenting with their complaint? And then what test do I order? Should I order some, something different because they're male or they're female? What medications should I order based on their biological sex? And at what dose and what side effects should I um, uh, warn them and um, to look out for? Um, and I think that if you constantly go through this sort of checklist, um, then it will help mitigate some of this, this bias. Um, because as you start to ask those questions, you then go, you know, you look it up and then you start to think. And as more data comes out, it will just be naturally filtered into the way that we care for patients. Um, but it's, it's, it's a long road. And that's why I hope to empower women to, um, to you know, do, uh, to be part of this um, so that they can start to receive care immediately. And you end with a story about your mom that I think is really important about how much she's learned from you. So when she has an episode and the EMTs are called, she actually educates the EMTs. Can you can you share that story about how your mom being empowered and educated actually led to her getting to the right medical care instead of the wrong? I love that story. And, you know, it happened right as I was finishing the book. Uh, she just told me and I was like, that's perfect. Um, I was so proud of her. So she was, um, you know, at a public place and started to feel like she was having uh, indigestion and discomfort and she was felt short of breath and, and nauseous. And she told my father and my father went to um, try to get help. And uh, someone called the uh, uh, EMTs to the scene and they went up to her and they started saying, um, you know, ma'am, do you have, um, are you having uh, chest pain? Um, are you having crushing chest pain in your chest? And she's like, no. Um, is it radiating down your left arm? Uh, and this EMT was going through their checklist of a heart attack the way that men have and the way that they were taught. And so she just looked right at him and said, that's not how women have heart attacks. And he responded by saying, well, how do women have heart attacks? And she said, with shortness of breath and with, you know, nausea and sometimes jaw pain. And, um, and he was like, okay. And so she ended up doing very well. She, she um, you know, did not have any, um, anything severely wrong with her. But it just really um, made me uh, proud. And then it, it made me feel as though that the, the concept for this book um, uh, might have power. And I, I, I really hope so. So in the few minutes we have left, I want to ask you, what do you hope this book sparks and where do you hope we go from here? Well, I hope that this book really um, sparks a overwhelming uh, aha moment. So I want it to have a domino effect 
once you know that men and women are different, then you can't unknow that. You can't just say, oh, forget it, and then go back to just studying men or forget it and not ask your doctor whether you should have a different medication dose or it's really important that we all realize how these uh, things may matter. And so I hope that, um, you know, part of my work is still with the scientific community. I hope that we establish baseline data in women. I hope that we start to welcome the complexity of the menstrual cycle and learn uh, specifically how to really care for women. Um, and I'm, you know, I work also to the educational programs and we are looking to include this into health education systems. And that's something that is very important to me. And then um, I hope that women can help change this uh, for themselves, uh, you know, as immediately because it needs to change. And to that end, you provide resources at the back of the book. You, you provide um worksheets and, and lists that women can compile. Do you want to briefly just state for listeners what kind of information so they can start thinking about what can they start bringing to appointments and what can they start doing at appointments to help themselves get a better outcome while you all work from your end at changing the way medicine is uh, studied and delivered? Sure. So it's really about writing down and keeping track. You could even just uh, put it on your phone or take a picture um, when people come in and have things on their phone, their, their you know pictures of their medication bottles, and it's it's so helpful. And I I love it when someone comes in and hand me a piece of paper, a couple piece of paper, a binder. I don't care, and it really goes through. This was my diagnosis at this date. I just had this CAT scan at the, this date. These are my this, um, all my physicians, my specialists. These are all of my medications. I smoke. I do hookah. I do recreational drugs. This is how much alcohol I, I do. I, I take or I don't take. When is my menstrual cycle? Am I postmenopausal, premenopausal? What do I use for uh, you know birth controls? Um, you know, and to also make sure that um, women um, declare their motives for the visit. So if your motive for the visit is to just have pain relief, to just um, be heard to uh, to get a diagnosis, to get a referral for a specialist. Do they need a note for work? Um, did their family member just get diagnosed with cancer and now you think you have it? To be very specific and open so that way that provider can, can really hone in on what your need is for that day and to just keep track of all of these things so that way you won't get repeated, um, you know, repeat tests and sent to, to things that over and over again you know, have their own risks and uh, their own costs. And, um, and so to just really keep track of things and to advocate for yourself. Those all sound really doable. And if anyone needs reminders of what those things are, she covers them in the back of the book as well. There's, there's hand, um, you know, tear sheets and things that will cover that for you. We have just a couple minutes left. Do you want to tell us what projects you're working on right now? The main project I'm working on right now with some colleagues is um, integrating uh, the sex and gender into health professions curricula. So um, it's really important to realize that 
you know, I can't just go give a lecture to a medical school and expect that to make any sort of lasting change. It's really a curricular um, integration. So every lecture, every discussion and workshop needs to make sure that they're teaching the future uh, healthcare providers the differences that they need to know. Um, and so we have our third summit. It's called the Sex and Gender Health Education Summit, and you can look at it online. So it's sghesummit.com, where we um, started with medical education, and then we realized that um, it's such an integrative process right now that um, dentists need to know this, and pharmacies, and um, and nursing, uh, and allied health. And so we've broadened it to healthcare professions and um, and work towards in integrating this into educating our future. So that I think will also help uh, create an awareness that our medical system needs from, from that perspective. That sounds really important. Uh, it has been great talking with you today. Dr. Allison McGregor, thank you so much for being on the show and telling us about your book, Sex Matters, How Male-Centric Medicine Endangers Women's Health and What We Can Do About It. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler, and you've been listening to The Gender Channel on New Books Network. Please join us again.